It seems every week we hear of another new proposal out of Washington, D.C. to fix drug pricing. Many of the companies that would be impacted by these proposals are in California, arguably the globe's leading biotech hub and where the sector was born. Joe Panetta is president and CEO of Biocom California, with offices in San Diego, Los Angeles, Sacramento, and the Bay Area. Biocom California advocates for more than 1,600 companies, service sector firms, universities, and research institutes working across the entire biotechnology sector. Joe's been the head of Biocom California since 1999 and is universally regarded as one of the world's thought leaders in innovative biopharma. Joe, it's always great to see you. How Thank are you doing? You. It's great to see you. Welcome to San Diego. Welcome to Bio 2022. It's just fantastic to be able to get together in person again. There are a lot of people here. Were you, are, were you surprised by the uh, crowd? You know what? A month ago, I would have been surprised if uh, we had 10,000 people here. I heard yesterday that there are 13,000 registered, and I'm guessing that there are a lot more that are, that are showing up. I mean, I look around, Dwayne, and it just feels like old times here. It's great. It feels like old times, but the <laughs> equity markets today and the last week have been absolutely pummeled. The NASDAQ's down 5% today. Yep. If we look back before COVID, Q1 of 2020, yep. 80% of the listings on the NASDAQ were biotech listings. Uh, the equity markets, the U.S. equity markets, have been the core driver of global biotech. What do you think is going to happen, particularly the San Diego ecosystem, one of the world's leading clusters? What, what do you think is going to happen given the crashing we're seeing in the equity markets right now? I think we're certainly going to see a, a lot uh, fewer companies going public, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> okay. and, and obviously, a lot of those that went public are uh, having some uh, severe challenges from a, from a funding standpoint, just from a valuation standpoint, too. So I've been in the San Diego biotech community since 19... 19- 88 and so i've seen ups and downs and recessions and boom times uh, you know probably each of which was uh, caused by something different but i think the one theme through it all is that the san diego ecosystem has grown over time continues to grow it's it's grown although you know, not as quickly through some of the downtimes um, as it has through some of the uptimes. It's always grown. I don't think I can think of a time in San Diego when the growth was just stagnant in, in, in any way, right? So, and for different reasons, right? Because if you look at the, the ecosystem here, the one amazing thing that we've been able to build over time in this, you know, people don't realize that San Diego in a lot of ways is an island, Right. We're located in the farthest, most southwest corner of the United States that you could possibly be located, mainland U.S. anyway. And at the same time, we've been able to build everything that we need to exist and grow as a life science community. The financing, the, the real estate, legal, the PR. But the one thing that I think has really fueled the growth has been the fact that this community here it has been so strong in innovative technologies and innovative research that continues to be the, the way it is. I mean, UCSD is now, uh, I think, the, the third most best-funded research university in the United States. Yeah. They've done amazing things to create a much more efficient tech transfer process, and to, their chancellor, Pradeep Kosla, has really pushed getting more technology out of, of the university into the hands of entrepreneurs and, you know, we produce a lot of our own talent here, too. 
serial entrepreneurs who have had many, many experiences either running companies or being in senior management in companies and turning out the talent uh, through the programs that have been created at the universities over the last 20 or 30 years in business, uh, in regulatory affairs, uh, just about every aspect, even even uh, programs in, in biomanufacturing, four-year degrees in biomanufacturing. You've been a witness to all the evolution. Oh, here. my gosh. I, I can't, When I came here, like Ivor Royston, who was one of our biotech pioneers, I, you know, I, I read a story that Ivor was interviewed for, and I said, I was the same as Ivor. Ivor said that he, he um, not uh, not the same as Ivor in any way because he didn't start the first biotech company, but in the sense that Ivor was talking about how he was going to be, I think, meeting with an investor from the East Coast. And um, this individual said, well, I'm going to fly into L.A. Can you just come over and pick me up? And Ivor said, no, I mean, I'm two hours away from L.A. I really knew nothing about San Diego when I came out here other than the fact that San Diego was a military town and a tourist destination. Didn't right. Know, didn't know that. With great weather. With great weather and a great <laughs> zoo. Um, but the thing is that when I came to San Diego, the bio, biotech industry per se was not even 10 years old yet. And while 10 years is a long time, in that period of time from when Hybertech was created through 1988, when I came here, not very many biotech companies were created, just a few. And I came here to go to work for one of the uh, first protein expression companies that was created in, in 1983. So uh, it, it had been around for about five years. And I came here to uh, because I had experience in, in Washington working with uh, FDA, EPA, USDA. Nobody out here knew how to do that kind of stuff on the regulatory side. Right. So anyway, I came out here to, to, to run the regulatory program. And one of the first things that I realized when I came out here was I was probably uh, one of like two people who understood how to do regulatory affairs out here. Flash forward 10 years from that, we created a program at San Diego State, a master's degree program in regulatory affairs, because what began to happen was companies got out of the early stage of research and into commercial development and they needed, obviously, to, to uh, conduct clinical trials and, uh, and to get through the FDA. And so there was a need for headcount. There was a need, yeah, absolutely. So I've seen the way it's grown over the years. Same thing in, in manufacturing, right? By the time companies began to get to the point where they were going to need to produce materials for clinical trials or actually go commercial, we began to see manufacturing facilities built. And we needed people to be trained in, in fermentation technology and, and bioengineering. So... Um, I've seen a lot. It's it's a lot different from what it was. I'm a former Orange County person, grew up behind the Orange Curtain. You know, I live in Europe now, but California is in many ways my home. California has always been ranked at the bottom of competitiveness. Business community always ranks yeah. at the bottom for taxation yeah. and you know, regulation and all yeah. this. But it's always sort of punched above that and always been able to produce. But last year in 2021, it was the first time we've actually seen less than 30% of the VC money flow into essentially California. It's been flowing yeah. outward. Phoenix is now in the top five. Nashville's in the top five. Are you concerned that this trend that's finally reached a tipping point where things are starting to go out because it's just becoming so hostile and anti-competitive? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly concerned all, always about ensuring that there's a competitive business climate in California. Um, you know, whether it's the ability of companies to raise money or the ability to build facilities or transportation challenges. I mean, 
certainly there are other places that appear to make it easier to uh, build a biotech business. But two things that I think California has always had and will always have. In addition to the weather. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, that's a, a very good point, too, because people used to want to come here more for the weather. Right. And... You know, now it's like, well, it's expensive and um, so much anymore. The idea that I, I need to be there because the weather's so so great. We got to come up with something better than than, than the weather. Okay. Right? But I think the thing that's really differentiated and will continue to differentiate California is that whether more venture capital is flowing out of California, it's thirty percent of an ever growing number. So the the amount of venture capital that's being deployed continues to grow. So the pie continues to grow. It's just a smaller piece of an already growing yeah. pie. And I think the other thing is that there's nowhere in the country that has the diversity of innovation that is becoming biotech. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I started in biotech here, it was essentially a business of molecular biologists and biochemists. Right. right? People spinning out of universities, setting up their own company. It was, yeah. it was sort of like Steve Jobs' garage, but for biotech in many ways. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, today you're seeing companies in Silicon Valley, tech companies, moving more into sequencing, moving into data analysis or virtual technologies that really pair up well with a lot of the products that are being developed in, in, in biotech. So, you know, I think we've got, we've got that opportunity uh, here in California, the fact that we've got the technology sector and the biotech sector that will continue to propel us in a direction of, of evolution and growth that is, is the future of, of biotech in a lot of ways. Digital technologies, uh, diagnostic technologies, you're not going to be able to do anywhere else better than you can do them in a place where we've got the greatest technology hub in the world up in Silicon Valley. So I think that's going to be a big plus. The other thing is, back in 2004, when the then Bush administration chose not to fund NIH's programs in regenerative medicines, stem cell technologies, yeah. in California, we said, well, we'll just create our own program. So, you know, we, we essentially created our own NIH of, of regenerative medicine through the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. It was funded at, uh, I believe, about uh, initially about $3.5 billion. That money went to very good use to, to uh, fund a lot of early-stage research in developing stem cell technologies and get them into the clinic. And two years ago, voters in California renewed it for another $5 billion. You know, I think there's this belief in California in the promise of, of innovation. So, And that supersedes the competitiveness that we deal with. So despite the grand macro challenges, the microclimate is still very, very positive, but you just have headwinds, I suppose. Yeah, and I think one of the things that Biocom California, we feel uh, we, we have to do is to ensure that our elected officials appreciate the fact that we are seeing money going to other places. Sure. Right. We presented yesterday at the Council of State Biotech Associations. You and I were yep. there, obviously. And we presented some new research that we're looking at on the accelerated approval. And a lot of the current attacks that are occurring on the accelerated approval have stemmed from a CMS Center for Medicare and Medicaid right. decision that was made a couple months ago yep. about Biogen's amyloid plaque drug, right. Aduhelm, for Alzheimer's disease. Right. 
Uh, we did the work on that for Biogen and full disclosure. It seems that this is now opening up a level of criticism from multiple fronts on the accelerated approval right. broadly. What do you think of the decision of CMS in general? What, what do you think about it? What, what's going to be the impact of that? Jan Woodcock at FDA said something the other day that I, I, I thought was simple but brilliant. You know, she said, if we had to know everything about some of these technologies that are being developed that go through accelerated approval that, that are developed to treat some of the most brutal diseases like, like Alzheimer's that we deal with, or some of the orphan in indications, it wouldn't be the accelerated approval process. Right. Right. It would be a normal process. It would be a normal process if you have to ev everything to dot every I and cross every T. It, it wouldn't be the accelerated approval process. What the accelerated approval process does, it shows a, a sense of hope and belief that if we get these technologies out there, we can at least figure out if they're going to be useful or, or not. So I don't have any problem with that. Anything that provides some degree of potential hope and treatment for diseases that we haven't been able to, to, to tackle in, in any meaningful way, I think it deserves to, to get through accelerated approval, and I think it should be given the opportunity to be funded. Particularly with Alzheimer's, the challenge you have with the amyloid plaques, it's not because the science around it, the biomarker data that was published in Nature right. in 2015 is very strong. The problem is just it's a problem of patent and revenue. It's to, in order to be able to fund the darn thing because amyloid plaques build up for 10 years right. before you get cognitive decline. So according to the new rules, the Pallone bill, for example, you would have to be able to prove a hard endpoint within five years to be able to find cognitive decline when the biomarker doesn't present for 10 years. Yeah. I mean, you've burned your patent by that point and then you're done. There's just no way. So who's, who, exactly. So who's going to even develop something in, in, in that arena? Well, in our Senate testimony, we said, look, if this continues, the drug companies are going to pull out and Helm's been pulled. I mean, yeah. people looked at us like the sky was falling. Well, it fell. We're never going to know right. whether it had any impact or not. And so I hope, I hope it's not uh, a harbinger of... of things to come in terms of, you know, people being dissuaded from developing those, those kinds of potential breakthrough therapies. Part of the problem as well, if you look at the overall climate, again, this is new research we're releasing on Wednesday. If you take every drug that's been developed and you look at the origination IP, where the, the real core patents that led to those drugs, and we did this for 363 drugs, you do the math on it and you find that 47.9% of these things globally came from small U.S. biotechs under half a billion dollars. Yeah. Small U.S. companies are developing half of all of these indications, and many of them are painfully small. You know, incidence rates of 1 in 10,000, 1 in 100,000, in some cases 1 in a million. Those are a lot of your members most of our members <laughs> yeah exactly most of most of our members and you know how how are those small companies going to first of all they're not going to be interested in competing in the in the, in the broader indications anyway right so how are they going to differentiate themselves if not by getting into into those types of indications where they can show that they're making a difference however however large it is a lot of the pharma companies obviously have moved into orphan indications as well and it's a lot of the pharma companies that we know from our global partnering conference every year that are out looking for opportunities to access some of those technologies from the smaller companies. It's all part of this broader ecosystem. Absolutely. And it's been hugely effective. It's yeah. been absolutely hugely yeah. effective. Absolutely. So the Senate and the House both have bills looking at accelerated approval. I guess the 
the political way would be, do you think the access pathway needs reform? I, the, I suppose the more blunt way I can ask this question, do they understand the damage they could possibly reap here? That's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I, I think we shouldn't at all take for granted that they understand the damage <laughs> that, they, that they could, that they could uh, possibly reap. And, and, you know, I'm saying that really because I think one of the things that is a large responsibility of ours is to teach and to educate and to inform and to find members of Congress who are willing to actually listen. We worked together with Biocom on HR3, and we did educate, and we did eventually cumulatively win the day. But it was a last-minute 60-yard pass to the end zone. You know, we did pull it out in the end, but it was not necessarily the kind of victory you always want to replicate, nor is it a high percentage win. That's why, you know, sometimes I, I... I just have to scratch my head over, you know, what it what it does take to have an effective uh, an effective relationship with members of Congress when it comes to getting to understand that the things that we do in this industry are tremendously risky. Uh, they're tremendously groundbreaking. You need to have the pathways available to be able to encourage people to take those risks, sure. and do those kinds of things, and. If we didn't, we'd be Europe. Or, <laughs> well, I live in Belgium, Joe, as you know, so thanks for that. <laughs> Obviously, we're coming into an election year. Is there yeah. room for compromise here anywhere on the accelerated approval? Is there some pathway reform we think we could do that would meet some level of acceptability to everyone? According to our research, that five-year barrier, you're cutting off 25% of all accelerated yeah. approvals at that point. You're just going to, you saw the research yesterday we presented an early yep. cut. Those are gone. So you're losing at least a quarter at that point. That's probably not the solution. What might be an option here that would develop a compromise? Is there room for compromise? I, I think, honestly, I, uh, my own feeling is that the accelerated approval process works just fine. <laughs> it seems to work very well. Yeah. I understand that, you know, in a lot of ways, politics is supposed to be the, the art of compromise, although... Or the art of the possible, I guess. Yeah. The, the way things have been going lately in, in the United States, I don't know that it's the art of the possible or the art of, of compromise. So I guess I just get back to the fact that this is a process that works very, very well. And I think the, the answer is really for the folks who uh, understand it and, and support it uh, to be able to persuade their colleagues uh, that they should support it. Going back to the CMS decision on Alzheimer's, does the CMS doing this now, sort of putting a secondary decision after the FDA, sort of a pricing decision and an access decision, doesn't that make them akin in some ways and in some fashion to a European-style health technology assessor? Yeah, I think in some ways I think it does. And, you know, in some ways I think that's probably not the direction we want to be going right. in. Right. Does this become a de facto standard now, do you think? Honestly, I, I hope it doesn't. I, at this point, we don't know how, how unique that situation really was with the Biogen drug. Do you think it gets fixed after the midterms? Well, I mean, it could get fixed after the midterms, yeah, because there, there's a much controversial 
material that they want to deal with between now and the midterms anyway. Sure. So. As if that's not enough, one of the other problems we're dealing with, Elizabeth Warren, uh, <laughs> Democrat of Massachusetts, proposed using marching rights to lower the price yeah. of a drug. So marching rights, for those folks who don't know, is part of the Bayh-Dole legislation that allowed yep. us to take federally funded IP from the NIH and then yep. commercialize it. And by all accounts, by all measures, by all countries, it's hugely successful. Yep. And everyone thinks it's a great thing. But there's a provision in March and Rights that allows the government to step back in. And the predominant reason that that was done was because the assets, if they weren't being utilized to their full capacity. If exactly. But now we want to use it for price controls. Well, at least Elizabeth Warren wants to use it for price controls. <laughs> so what would be the impact of this, Joe, if we start having the government come in and basically taking over IP because it doesn't like the price? I was talking earlier about how I've been in, in this industry for 34 years now. And from the time that I came into this industry, out of the traditional, I worked in the traditional chemical industry before I came, I realized very, very quickly there's an important balance between what goes on at NIH and what happens when entrepreneurs take on technology uh, and take on the risks of developing it and funding it. The NIH's job is to do early stage basic research. And it's set up very well to be able to pass on intellectual property, that research, to folks who have the, the skills to develop it further, uh, have the ability to raise a capital to develop it further, and who uh, are going to further benefit by the uh, intellectual property rights that they take on, right? So you take that away, and it's, you know... It's what, one of those things that I think works once, right? Yeah. And then after that, no one's going to take IP from the NIH, probably. Yeah, because the March in Rights provision, as you said, in Bayh-Dole was not set up to leverage drug pricing. It, it was set up to basically take back intellectual property that wasn't being developed and was, was, be, was being abandoned. Joe Hamming, who runs our U.S. business, and I, we were looking through all the applications that we found of March and Rights. And we found a really interesting case from the mid-90s. University of Wisconsin was sort of sitting on a stem cell patent. Yep. And it's hard to read between the lines, but it looks like there were some issues there regarding the licensing at the, the division of the IP at the university was sort of traditional, what we call an economics rent-seeking behavior. And yep. they, the NIH felt this isn't being exploited enough. And so then they came in did a marching on it, and then it ended up getting licensed out to like 16, 20 companies almost immediately. That seems to me the proper spirit and utilization of that bill. That seems to be exactly what it was written for. A absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think on the, on the flip side, too, if we were to get to a point where people were threatened with the potential for mar marching rights to be used uh, to, to determine the, the pricing of their drug, then what's going to end up happening is that all of that or, or a large percentage of, of that technology is going to stay right where it is. It's not going to yeah. go anywhere else. So what have we accomplished, right? Nothing. So one of the other things that seems to be coming back in this fine election year is people are trying to pull out some of the finer bits of Build Back Better. It's yep. going to reoccur. Is Build Back Better going to die a painful death like last time, or are they going to try and cram through some drug pricing? What do you reckon, Joe? Get out your crystal ball this, this here. What do you think? This is, you know, this, uh, and I've been around this a lot longer than I've been in the biotech industry. I, you sure. know, I started my career in Washington, and so I'm pretty familiar with what happens not only in election years, but in pivotal election years like like this one, right? 
and the answer is typically not much. <laughs> so, and that's a good thing, you think? <laughs> in this case, well, I, I think I think the thing is that we'll, you know we talk about drug pricing, and you guys have done so much incredible work on on drug pricing. Thank you, Joe. And, uh, and again, you've been very supportive of that. Thank it's, you. It's just it's been a teaching process. The, what, what you guys have done for members of Congress, and I think it's made a huge difference. You know, in the end, I guess what what I'm hopeful about is that, you know, we're beginning to see the uh, FTC look more at PBMs and and that whole, I was going to call it a scheme. (laughs) (laughs) Mechanism, perhaps? That whole whole, whole toolbox, I guess. Toolbox, mechanism, yeah. I'm glad that some of the focus is beginning to shift away from this idea that drugs cost so much because pharma companies charge so much for them. Right. Which I know is not the case, that a lot of the drugs that are difficult to be able to afford, pharma companies have have a lot of programs for people to be able to afford those. But if we're going to talk about drug pricing, it has to be done in a more comprehensive way than to simply look at drug companies charging too much for drugs. And then, you know, it's safe to say that the whole importation of foreign drug pricing is probably dead. It's dead. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's another one that works once. The problem is then you're basically forcing the country with whom you are exporting drugs to adopt U.S. economics. And then no one's going to sell to them, and then all the prices are going to go up there, too. It works for like two months, and then it's over. And I think we've got some great representation in Congress leadership here in San Diego, folks like Scott Peters, who understand that and are well-respected. So I don't see much happening, honestly. You're getting hit from all sides now in the sector. The equity markets are dumping badly. A year from now, next bio, what's the conversation we're having? A year from now at the, at the next bio, you know, I don't think I can remember a time, at least in my adult life, when things have been as much in turmoil and as unpredictable as they are right now. I mean, inflation at over 8.5% right now. Carter administration, 79 is the last time it was this high. Right? Yeah. Um, and 79, I was still in grad school so you know <laughs> i was too busy poking my head in a book all day long to, to to think about that we've got the potential for the fed to continue to raise interest rates to the point where we might even sink into a recession we, we don't know if that's going to happen or not market sell-off the last few days huge yeah. market sell-off. huge market sell-off the only thing that i can continue to have confidence in is the fact that innovative research is going to continue to be done Maybe there's going to be more of a conservative approach to funding than there was. But investors have to do something with their money, right? Pfizer's sitting on a cash pile of 50, 60 yeah. billion. AstraZeneca's sitting on a 20, 30 billion cash pile, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Are we going to start seeing some big merger activity? I mean, I, I, with inflation at 10%, you can't sit on the money because it, it halves in seven years. You got you to right. use it. Right. You're going to start seeing some of your better firms getting acquired, do you think? I think, you know, it depends on what we define as some of our better firms. Um, sure. Yeah, I think I think we're going to, first of all, you know, some of the firms that went public, uh, lots and lots of them went, went public the last couple of years, are pretty challenged right now. They're going to need to do something to access capital, right? So I think M&A activity is going to increase. I think, sure. I think we're going to see more buying by, by big pharma. You're right. They can't just sit on the cash. No. Um, so, you know, I think we're going to see more uh, M&A activity, and I think we're going to continue to see investment 
in the early stage research and I, th- I think, look, we've also got a venture capital community out there that um, can't just sit around and wait, right, for, for very long. So they're going to be looking. I think what's going to happen is that we're going to begin to see a lot more scrutiny in terms of, you know, the kinds of companies that, that get those dollars and a lot more competition, a lot more M&A. Because even though some of these companies are financially challenged underwater, doesn't mean that their technology is not still sound. Absolutely. It's just they're a victim of circumstance right, right now. Exactly. Well, Joe, we'll talk about this maybe in a year. We'll sit down and see where we are. It'd be great yeah. to catch up uh, again. It, it really will be. And look, to come full circle, I've been at this for a long time. You have you have too. And the great thing about this industry is that it's always taking on new challenges. And, and I think that's just the nature of the beast. Joe, it's always great to sit down and talk to you. Always enjoy it. Same here, Dwayne. And it'll be great to see you again. Thanks for the partnership. Appreciate it. Our pleasure. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.